It's April 3rd, 2022. 38 days of war. For this episode, I took a break, a long break, from regular reporting on the Russian war against Ukraine to look at some, well, let's call them interesting, takes on the war that are slowly bubbling up in online cesspools. In fact, some of the talking points have already made it to Fox News. Okay, but that would spare the deaths, and since I know you have great concern for the civilian population of Ukraine, that would spare the deaths of untold thousands and preserve the capital city from being destroyed. So would that be better than increasing the level of armed conflict in Ukraine? Which would be a better outcome? That's for the Ukrainians. What do you mean? You're, you're, you're an American policymaker who's imposing your views on Ukraine. And I'm asking you simply, would that be a better, why not, why not push? Well, Well, of course you are. You're saying we need to send materiel, billions of dollars, arm the military. And I'm not criticizing your position. I'm just asking you, has it occurred that many lives might be saved if we were to encourage the, the peaceful solution that's already on the table. Why am I torturing you with Tucker Carlson's voice? Well, it all started with a tweet. On March 23rd, 2022, just over a week ago, Jackson Hinkle, self-described American patriot and Marxist-Leninist, tweeted at 10.51 a.m. <laughs> Vladimir Zelensky is a war criminal. That's a hot take, with 18,000 likes and 3,800 retweets, and it comes from the far left. It echoes the hot take by Tucker Carlson, ostensibly the voice of reason for the American right. Tucker Carlson didn't use the phrase war criminal, though. He said, That would spare the deaths of untold thousands and preserve the capital city from being destroyed. So would that be better than increasing the level of armed conflict in Ukraine, which would be a better outcome. It's just a more convoluted way of saying that Zelensky is letting Ukrainians die. But it's the replies, responses, and sub-replies to the war criminal tweet that makes things interesting. A direct reply from Men Spirit. The goal of a leader whose country cannot win a war must accept conditions which are both beneficial to the longevity of his people and cause no deaths in the process. This is reality. And then, buried deep in a subthread, shame your fetishes for a hollow puppet using his people as cannon fodder for NATO expansionism. Hinkle's account is particularly nauseating, but that's not the point. The point is to find the ignition source for the hot takes. And I think we found it. What makes President Zelensky a war criminal? Well, Zelensky, puppet of the West, has engaged in a war against Russia that it cannot win in order to expand NATO's reach in exchange for membership, sacrificing Ukraine's citizens in the process. And for these reasons, Hinkle then tweeted on March 25th at 6.32 p.m. As an American patriot, I 100% support the Russian military operation in Ukraine. 541 retweets, 3,400 likes. It doesn't take long to come across Russian accounts and far-left accounts with the Russian war symbol, the Z, in their descriptions. And you know what? There's an underlying sentiment there that speaks to most leftists that we can't really trust any head of state, that to posture for NATO and international military is to posture for Western imperialism. It is to posture for the capitalist West that targets and hurts the global poor the most. That's a pretty broad, open, and widely acceptable sentiment among the left. But to call Zelensky a war criminal, I wondered, is there something I'm missing? Have I, in spite of following the war closely, or maybe because I've been following it so closely, have I been made blind to the morally bankrupt decisions of Ukraine's president? 
Let me say that the statement Zelensky is a war criminal is not made in good faith, like at all. It does not even purport to explain why this claim is being made. However, the tweet provides a blank slate for others to fill in what they perceive as evidence of this claim without having to make any other point. It makes support for Ukraine in general suspect. It cleaves the narrative of Ukraine the victim, Russia the aggressor. Do we really have a clear picture of events if Zelensky is a war criminal, is widely regarded as a rare statement of truth, if it removes the wool from our eyes? It then allows those who agree with the statement to add their own explanations, and they don't have to make sense or be consistent. Let's take it at face value, and let's take some of the talking points from its 700-plus replies at face value as well. Ukraine is fighting a war it cannot win, therefore fighting the war will inevitably result in needless deaths. It is better to capitulate at once than suffer any casualties. Ukraine should have capitulated at once. This is the argument. Ukraine and its government are corrupt. The president and his party are willfully letting civilians be slaughtered, refusing to let them evacuate occupied cities and using them as bargaining chips. This is the argument. The Ukrainian government handed out rifles to its citizens, forcing them to fight the Russians. This is the argument. Ukrainians are Nazis. They are torturing Roma citizens, tying them to street signs and poles and beating them. The existence of the Azov Battalion and the far-right Maidan Revolution means Putin's claim of Nazism is accurate. This is the argument. The Ukrainian government is funding and supporting the Azov Battalion, a neo-Nazi military unit that is actually bombing residential areas and murdering civilians. This is the argument. Millions of Ukrainians have been able to evacuate Ukraine via train, bus, and car, proving that Russia is not targeting civilian infrastructure. Therefore, the Russian war in Ukraine, the war where the Russian military crossed the border into Ukraine with tanks and rockets, that war isn't as bad as it could be, and in fact, Russia is exercising restraint. If Russia was truly the bad guy here, the civilian casualties would be much higher. This is the argument. Where? Are these ideas formed, and do they form a legitimate critique of the war? Would they form a legitimate critique of any war? Even when support for Ukraine is not questioned, there is a particular brand of critique that says what we are seeing is exaggerated, that the war isn't that bad. And this comes from the perspective of the global war machine. William Arkin, writing for Newsweek March 22nd, interviewed anonymous military experts and advisors, quote, If we merely convince ourselves that Russia is bombing indiscriminately, or that it is failing to inflict more harm because its personnel are not up to the task or because it is technically inept, then we are not seeing the real conflict. I know that the news keeps repeating that Putin is targeting civilians, but there is no evidence that Russia is intentionally doing so, says the DIA analyst. In fact, I'd say that Russia could be killing thousands more civilians if it wanted to, end quote. Is this restrained assault any more comforting for us in the narrative of Zelensky the war criminal? Not that these two narratives are connected, they are completely removed from each other, but in that narrative... Are the war crimes perpetuated by Zelensky, the sacrifice of Ukrainians to the Russian military, are they in some way more egregious if Russia is in fact making efforts to reduce civilian casualties? Casualties caused nonetheless because Russia invaded a neighboring country. The problem is both in how we digest this information and how it comes to us in 140 character chunks, in 10 minute reads online in TikTok and Instagram videos between one and five minutes in length, in all-encompassing theories of war that draw a straight line from an historical starting point to today. Of course, none of these things are accurate. They may contain truths, but they are not the truth. 
the truth is never pleasant to hear. That is its danger and its power. It makes a repugnant statement, like Zelensky is a war criminal, stand out to us. It is the opposite of what we see. Zelensky the hero, Zelensky the leader, the brave, the bold. And it is that approach that mimics the feeling of truth. I said this all started with a tweet. What evidence have I overlooked that the phrase Zelensky is a war criminal gives me pause instead of just brushing it off instinctively? The answer is nothing. No evidence there, just a difference in perception. The same difference in perception given by anonymous war analysts that explains, with relatively digestible truth, that Russia's war could be bloodier. Ukraine did indeed hand out rifles to its citizens. Was it a war crime to arm the unarmed? Ukrainians do indeed tie people to poles and paint their faces green. It caught me off guard the first time I saw it. Are the victims Roma? Are they Russian-speaking? The Ukrainians explain. They are looters. They are taking advantage of the war. They have no police because of war. And these people are stealing from vacant homes. They're looting stores. And regular citizens are catching them and humiliating them publicly. Okay, here's the guy. That's, that's the looter. I, I guess other citizens saw this guy looting. And so they taped him to a pole. And they pulled his pants out and taped him to a pole. Just kind of like public shaming thing. This is also sort of the Spider-Man strategy of, uh, you know, you don't have the you don't have the, the, the webs, the indestructible webs. But he kind of, you know, ties him to a pole, let the police show up. So that's what the Ukrainians Is that here. moral? Is it just? What depravities would the West indulge in should we find ourselves without the threat of law enforcement? We know all too well how U.S. citizens treat their minorities when they take the law into their own hands. I point you to Ahmaud Arbery. Are we all, all Americans, to be judged by the actions of Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and William Bryan? Do their actions, the actions of George Zimmerman, Kyle Rittenhouse, do they paint a detailed enough portrait of American values for all of us to be guilty by association? The images of people, any people, tied to polls tells us literally nothing about Ukraine's 44 million citizens. Is it moral? Is it just? Are those of us who support Ukraine in reality supporting fascism or racism? Have we been duped? Is it even necessary to point out that citizens humiliating people publicly does not equal government-sanctioned persecution? We don't even need to comment on whether the behavior is demeaning, but its only purpose is to draw attention away from Russian atrocities. It changes nothing about Russian tanks rolling across a land that is not Russia. It has no value, but here I am talking about it. Chris Hedges, American journalist and social critic, wrote in his 2003 book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, quote, Just as the oppressors engage in selective memory and myth, so do the victims, building unassailable monuments to their own suffering. It becomes impossible to examine, to dispute, or criticize the myths that have grown up around past suffering of nearly all in war. The oppressors are painted by the survivors as monsters. The victims paint themselves as holy innocents. The oppressors work hard to bury inconvenient facts and brand all in wartime with the pitch of atrocity. They strive to reduce victims to their moral level. Each side creates its own narrative. Neither is fully true. End quote. In social media, we can see this memory being written and rewritten in real time. Russia has invaded Ukraine, but Ukraine is not a wholly innocent. Russia has killed civilians, but it could kill more civilians. We are intoxicated by war, as Hedges says. So, yeah, of course, the, the, every uh, society is susceptible to that dark elixir. Russia is no exception. Uh, they've, of course, uh, turned on their press. Uh, and uh, 
um, and they they're drinking deep from it. But but we're as uh, we're as guilty of that sin as the Russians. And we are so drunk that the atrocity is palatable and victims are equally culpable. We in the West are watching a conflict thousands of miles away cross-eyed, unable to resist the drug of war that feeds our predetermined narrative. Whether this war is just or unjust, we will argue it until our throats bleed raw. Unfortunately, our sober memories are not vivid enough to fight our instinct for bloodlust. The threat of NATO is one such sober memory. But where in U.S. history do we stop and pinpoint the trajectory to the present state of Ukraine? Was it at the signing of the Budapest Memorandum in 1994, in which the U.S. assured that it would support Ukraine's economy and security in exchange for the handover of its nuclear stockpile left over from the USSR? Perhaps Putin felt justified in violating the terms of the Budapest Memorandum because, as Putin states, Russia's own security was not assured with the expansion of NATO. Perhaps it was the language in the 2021 joint statement on the U.S. and Ukraine that announced a joint effort to enhance, quote, U.S.-Ukraine strategic defense and security cooperation, which included countering Russian aggression and formalized that, quote, the U.S. supports Ukraine's right to decide its own future foreign policy free from outside interference, including with respect to Ukraine's aspirations to join NATO, end quote, and extending the terms of the Budapest Memorandum another seven years. Maybe it was the U.S.-Ukraine strategic partnership that threatened Russia that made Putin believe the arguments made in 1994 had been thrown to the wind. Noam Chomsky calls this, along with Bill Clinton's 1998 expansion of NATO to Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic, quote, another purposeful exercise in poking the bear in the eye, end quote. Perhaps it was the 1998 expansion of NATO that said to then-President Yeltsin, Russia is irrelevant to Ukraine. Perhaps that began this downward spiral, but maybe that was forgivable. It occurred under Yeltsin. Perhaps there was leniency. But under Putin, perhaps the 2004 expansion to Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia, or maybe the 2009 expansion to Albania and Croatia, or maybe it was the 2017 expansion to Montenegro, or the 2020 expansion to North Macedonia. Perhaps to Putin, any of these moments in the past two decades crossed the line. The, uh, the new government in Ukraine that uh, uh, took over after the former uh, uh, government was overthrown, uh, last December, late December, it passed a resolution overwhelmingly, I think something like 308 or something, uh, announcing its intention to take steps to join NATO. Uh, for uh, no Russian leader, no matter who it is, could tolerate Ukraine right at the geostrategic center of Russian concerns, joining a hostile military alliance. I mean, we can imagine, for example, how the U.S. would have reacted, say, during the Cold War if uh, uh, the Warsaw Pact had extended to Latin America and uh, Mexico and Canada were now uh, planning to join the Warsaw Pact. Of course, that's academic, because the first step would have led to a violent U.S. response and wouldn't have gone any further. At each instance, NATO inched closer to Russia. It is reality that the U.S. has played a major part in this escalation. It is at least evidence of irresponsible statecraft. Does it put Ukrainian blood on Zelensky's hands? No, it does not. Ukraine did not, after all, cross the Russian border with false assurances from the U.S. that we would provide cover for all their posturing, taunting, and poking if we want to at least cede to Russia the dignity of provocation. 
the irresponsible parties of Ukraine and the U.S. at least acted irresponsibly within geopolitical norms. We can't say with even a hint of sincerity that the Ukrainians brought this on themselves, let alone that Zelensky volunteered Ukrainians to die for the pleasure of maybe, one day, hopefully but probably not, joining NATO. Perhaps it was the rejection of Russian influence in Ukraine that crossed the line. But would that be the Orange Revolution in the winter of 2004-2005? Or would that be the Maidan protests of 2013 and 2014? In 2004, the results of the Ukrainian presidential election were so contested that a sign language interpreter on Ukraine's UT1 state-run network signed to viewers, quote, I address all deaf viewers. Yushchenko is our president. Do not believe the Electoral Commission. They are lying, end quote. Allegations of voter intimidation, physical assault, and even ballot boxes being set on fire were widespread, but they weren't reported on UT1. The Orange Revolution resulted in the election results being overturned and a new election taking place. The winner of the first round of election, Viktor Yanukovych, lost the runoff election to Viktor Yushchenko. Yanukovych's party, Party of Regions, signed a collaboration agreement with Putin's United Russia Party in 2005, and in 2009, Yanukovych spoke in St. Petersburg, Russia, in front of the 11th Congress of United Russia, stating that for five years, Ukraine hadn't cooperated enough with Russia and laid the groundwork for his upcoming election, saying, quote, New politicians called for bridling Russia, peoples who for centuries have had cultural kin ties cemented by bare human friendship. I realize the fine line separating Ukraine from sliding to oppressive regimes, end quote. Was it the 2004 rejection of Yanukovych, or the lack of sufficient cooperation, that sat poorly with Russia? Or was it the 2014 Maidan protest that saw the perfectly cooperative Yanukovych overthrown? Yanukovych won the Ukrainian presidency legitimately in 2010. Legitimately, sure, but not without opposition. At his February inauguration, former President Yushchenko and Ukrainian Prime Minister Yulia Tymoshenko did not attend while Speaker of Russian Parliament Boris Grislov and Patriarch Cyril, the Russian Orthodox Bishop, Primate of Moscow, did. When we say that Yushchenko was Russia-backed, Russia-aligned, or pro-Russian, it's important to keep in mind the backstory, the direct coalition with the United Russia Party, the presence of the Russian Orthodox Church at his inauguration, and myriad little nudges in the direction of Ukraine's eastern neighbor, like declaring Stalin's 1930-imposed famine in Ukraine, the Holodomor, not genocide, and also his praise for the Soviet-era KGB who, quote, firmly stood on guard over the interests of our people and the state, end quote, and the relentless persecution and prosecution of opposition party leader Yulia Tymoshenko in pursuit of a, quote, controlled democracy through power consolidation and the targeting of his political opponent. These, like the tiny steps taken in Russia that slowly eroded away opposition and consolidated power for Putin, slowly inched Ukraine away from European integration, aligning it instead with Russian interests. Nothing inherently bad or questionable in that sentiment. A sovereign nation, after all, is free to align with any country. We allow that grace to ourselves in the West, however cautiously we may approach such relationships. We should at least give credit to the fear within Ukraine that Ukraine was becoming a satellite nation to Russia, never mind what the West thought about it. But it was Yanukovych's sudden reversal in 2013 on a long-standing campaign promise to move towards European Union integration that sealed his fate. It brought that fear of reintegration with Russia to a head. Integration with the European Union had been on the table. Better trade agreements, political association with the West, 
the deep and comprehensive free trade area, the electoral, judiciary, and constitutional reforms in line with international standards. But European Union membership was not on the table. Part of the agreement was the release of Yulia Tymoshenko from prison. The relentless prosecution and persecution of Tymoshenko was internationally condemned. Eleven lawsuits against her on the grounds of corruption and even murder constituted a, quote, stark deterioration of democracy and the rule of law. Former Ukrainian Prime Minister Yulia Tymoshenko was found guilty of abuse of office and sentenced Tuesday to seven years in jail. And part of the European Union agreement was the release of Tymoshenko to Germany for medical care. A Ukrainian court has held a hearing inside Yulia Tymoshenko's prison cell, where the opposition leader was in bed with back problems. Prosecutors formally asked for her re-arrest on additional charges of tax evasion and theft. In October, she was sentenced to seven years for abuse of office in a case that caused an outcry in the West. When the Ukrainian parliament failed to vote on the motions, Tymoshenko demanded her release from prison and transfer to Germany be taken off the table in order for the European Union Association Agreement to pass. The change in attitude toward the Association Agreement came after a secret meeting in St. Petersburg between Yanukovych and Putin. Secret because we know the meeting took place, but not at all what was discussed. That meeting preceded another meeting between Ukrainian and Russian Prime Ministers Michael Azarov and Dmitry Medvedev, respectively. The Ukrainian reversal on the association agreement was, according to Azarov, quote, in the national interest of Ukraine. The association agreement was not an obscure piece of legislation. It was supported across all of Ukraine, including in the south and east, where Russian support overall was greater. Protests began in Kiev, November 21, 2013 the day Yanukovych announced his decision on the association agreement. The demonstrations that took place in Kiev Central Square, the Maidan, that's the start of the Maidan Revolution, the Maidan Uprising, Euromaidan, whatever you want to call it. It was a revolt of pro-European political forces that ultimately took control of the capital and formed an interim government. Yanukovych and other government officials fled Kiev for Russia. Yanukovych abandoned his 340-acre estate, the Mezihira, and its luxury barge, clubhouse, zoo, helipad, fountains, and lakes, which he'd acquired from the state for an unpublished price, though part of the estate he seems to have simply taken for himself and restored and upgraded with money taken from the state. The Mezahuria is now a museum to the excesses of Yanukovych, to political corruption. It was taken over by protesters in the wake of the Maidan protest. It was converted back to public ownership in February 2014, just days after Yanukovych fled Ukraine. But back to the Maidan protests. Was it this act, the ouster of Yanukovych, that resulted in an immediate loss of Russian influence in Ukraine? Was it that act that sounded the alarms in Moscow? Was it everything that occurred between the Budapest Memorandum and the Maidan Revolution that amounted to an existential threat to Russia as a geopolitical power? It was immediately after the November 2013 protests in February and March of 2014 that Russia decided to both annex Crimea and invade the Donbass region. The Maidan protests did not result in some lucky fringe group obtaining power. The generalized narrative around Maidan, one pushed by Moscow and subsequently many outlets in the West, is that nationalist and fascist operators seized power and installed an illegitimate government. A lazy U.S. analog could be the failed January 6 coup attempt, which in another reality, one that saw the coup succeed, would have produced that same narrative. 
The same lazy analogy is found in the Orange Revolution in response to the fraudulent elections of 2004. Through the U.S. nationalist lens, mass protest that led to runoff elections and the successful overthrow of the U.S. government would have been a sign that the people's voices were heard, that they had reached out for their freedom and seized it from a tyrannical swamp of unelected bootlickers. It is perhaps for this reason that many on the U.S. right have found themselves aligned with the Ukrainian cause. It is equally likely that the Ukrainian rise against a perceived puppet regime is seen as a liberation of sorts in U.S. leftist circles. It is these two perspectives that, from so far away, put Russia's war against Ukraine into focus. The inverse opinions among the far left and far right are at least consistent with their prejudices. Anti-nationalist leftists against the U.S. hegemony view Maidan as a CIA operation meant to undermine Ukrainian sovereignty, while among the far right, the success of a coup in a former Soviet republic sparks Cold War fears of instability in corrupt Eastern Europe. Equally appalling to the far right is the shared sentiment that such international coups are only possible if done with Western involvement. Another step toward the New World Order, directed by global elites. Ironically, these shared beliefs that produce mass mobilization across different social groups or constituencies, these are the same phenomena that drove the Maidan protest. It has created both near-unanimous Western support for Ukraine during the present war, and has driven the far left and the far right to view the war in Ukraine as a proxy war between Russia and the U.S. But what relevance is there in the Western perspective? It does little but establish a self-centering posture. Perhaps that itself is the relevance, that we cannot look at two independent and sovereign nations as truly independent and sovereign. The grip of the West, and specifically the United States, is so tight that it strangles all foreign relations. International diplomacy does not exist. It is a cynicism that has at least some merit. But cynicism eschews nuance for paranoia. The EU Association Agreement makes for a good story. That Ukrainians were unanimously pro-EU integration. That this was a cut-and-dry case of the U.S. against Russia, the forever adversaries. This narrative plays equally well in Russia. But what is truth? In focus groups following the Maidan Revolution, non-activist participants recounted that the focus on the association agreement was misguided, that it was at least one of many grievances held by Ukrainians. The network of activists, 1,000 or 2,000, that initially took to protest on November 21st and 22nd were surprised to find posts on social media showing solidarity throughout Ukraine not only in Kiev, but also in Lviv to the west, Donetsk in the east, and Ivano, Frankivsk, Lutsk, Rivni, Ternopil, Sumy, Kharkiv, and Odessa. And when political opposition leaders began to call for larger demonstrations, drawing up tens of thousands of protesters to Kiev, opposition split. Activists and students formed the Student Maidan, and political oppositionists formed the Political Maidan. Student Maidan had a broader outrage than just the EU Association Agreement. They were outraged against corruption and lies and an increasingly authoritarian regime under Yanukovych. It was exactly this nationwide support and the split amongst students and politicians, with politicians missing the broader anxieties of the Student Maidan, that led to the events a few months later, the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of the Donbass. The opposition to Yanukovych grew so large that the east-west divide, the north-south divide of Ukraine, that seemed to split the nation into pro-west and pro-Russia, that seemed to dissolve. 
In its two decades of statehood, Ukraine had never been more united, even when ideologically split between student activists and political opposition. Their causes aligned squarely against the Yanukovych regime. This is the story of two Maidans, the left-leaning pro-European Maidan and the nationalist political parties that tried to gain power. The story of two Maidans held for a few days, until the brutality of Ukraine's riot police, the Berkut, was shared with the world. Beginning on November 22nd, the Berkut began attacking protesters. Videos and photos of the abuse went viral, and it solidified both opposition groups, the students and activists and the political oppositionists, into a unified Maidan. By December 1st, the Maidan protests grew to 400,000 to 800,000 protesters. Further post-Maidan surveys dispel many of the popular myths about the protests. For example, the narrative that Ukrainians were calling for a ban on the Russian language is flatly untrue. Most protesters didn't care what language anyone spoke. Even those who considered Ukrainian their first language, the spoken language was primarily Russian, especially in Kiev. Moreover, one-third of Maidan protesters had never participated in protests before, while two-thirds of protesters could be called politically disengaged. And across age groups, motivations for protesting varied, from EU engagement to economic security to protecting the future for their children. Even among student protesters, feminists seeking closer alignment with the European Union were surprised that the nationalist notion of joining the EU did not include broader rights for women. Indeed, the feminist component of Maidan was opposed by more nationalist-oriented protesters. That's not surprising. But the fact remained, feminine activists continued to show up to the Maidan protests, even if that meant protesting separately. By February 18th, the somewhat unified Maidan, consisting of a broad range of ideologies, had been spiraling out of control. No one could lead, and no one within Maidan could control the protests. It was an autonomous movement at that point, and while there was a collective will against Yanukovych, there was no coherent plan for moving forward, but the protest did not relent. And then things became violent. The Berkut burned down the Maidan headquarters and began firing on protesters with rifles. They used grenades and utilized snipers, resulting in at least 90 dead and over 600 injured. This led to sanctions on Yanukovych and his regime by the U.S. and European Union. Maidan had come so far, massive casualties and international intervention, that the clear resolution of Maidan would be no less than Yanukovych being removed from office. And that's what happened. And it was this inciting event that led to the near-immediate annexation of Crimea and occupation of the Donbass by Russia. In this context, another motive emerges from Russia. We'll recall that Putin's popularity was falling at this time, and in the chaos of neighboring Ukraine without solid leadership, it was advantageous to stoke Russian nationalism by reclaiming Crimea, by supporting the insurgencies in Donbass. It had the intended effect. Putin's popularity in Russia surged. Was it convenience or fear that drove Putin? Was it national security or pride? Was any of Ukraine's inner struggle Putin's business? This was part one of Poking the Bear. As always, we encourage you to check out helpingtoleave.org. That's a volunteer network of Russian dissidents who work 24-7 to help Ukrainians find food, shelter, clothing, and evacuation routes out of Ukraine. All are Russian expats, many of whom have been arrested in the past for protesting Putin's government. They're fighting back. Helpingtoleave.org. <laughs>